From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, October 15th. My guests today are our roundtable regulars. Imogen Rose-Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor-in-chief. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hey, Imogen. Today, we're going to discuss Imogen's latest institutional impact column, where she lays out all the ways in which the UK is better than the US, particularly when it comes to climate change. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. An ambition gap threatens the Global Climate Summit in Glasgow. The International Energy Agency warns in a new report that current pledges by governments fall 80% short of what's needed to reach net zero emissions by 2050. That's a gap of 14 gigatons of greenhouse gases. You might recall that the agency declared back in May that new fossil fuel investments should stop immediately. Impact Alpha teamed up with The Plug for this week's Agent of Impact call, which highlighted black entrepreneurs and investors who are scaling climate solutions. Taj Eldridge of Inclusive Ventures weighed in. We're not investing for to save the mammals and save the earth. We're investing to save Keisha, to save Taj, to save Derek, and everybody else because climate change is a public health issue, it's a social justice issue, and it's an, it's an economic issue. Catch the full replay and hot takes at impactalpha.com calls. All these new electric vehicles need batteries, and batteries need lithium. Lilac Solutions raised $150 million to extract lithium from saltwater brine. That's evidently more sustainable and lower carbon intensive than traditional lithium mining. AXA, the big insurer, took a minority stake in Blue Lake and Orange Capital. That's the Latin American debt fund launched by former World Bank officials to advance the sustainable development goals. Practitioners in two of Impact Alpha's focus areas received grants to deepen their evidence bases and strategies. Groups that are reimagining capitalism, including Americans for Financial Reform, B-Lab, and the Shareholder Commons, split $10 million from the Omidyar Network. And the Catalytic Capital Consortium greenlit 14 deep dives to gather evidence on the use of flexible, patient, and yes, sometimes concessionary investments for smallholder farmers, early-stage climate solutions, and inclusive fintech lending. Both Omidyar Network and the Catalytic Capital Consortium are sponsors of Impact Alpha. And finally, some royal news. Prince Harry and the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, came out as impact investors. The Friends of Oprah joined the sustainable investing platform Ethic to, quote, educate and rally our impact community around the issues that matter most. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email inboxes each day this week. And speaking of Royals, Imogen, your column this week went full home team booster, at least when it comes to climate politics in the UK. You seem to be taking a victory lap there. Shouldn't you be keeping calm and carrying on instead? I feel like that's a little harsh. I don't think it's, you know, home team boosterism or even honestly taking a victory lap to suggest that the UK's politics towards climate change are more coherent than the US's, are more cohesive than the what's happening in the US. I mean, I think that's just a statement of fact, right? You know, it's, it is striking that you have 
conservative politicians in the UK, including, you know, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, speaking about climate change in language, you know, A, recognizing that climate change is real, and B, recognizing that we need to do things to address and respond to climate change, and that there is an urgency to do that. You know, the, and Boris Johnson, to be clear, is is very right wing, right? Like, I mean, the sort of Tory faithful love him. You know, he's not considered a centralist, but, you know, in the UK, it is, you know, pretty standard to believe that climate change is real. And that something needs to be done about it. And as a result, you see politicians from across the political spectrum agreeing with that and it not being particularly controversial. I, I wanted to tip my hat to your country mates, uh, Imogen, as well, because um, the UK actually has cut carbon, I think, more deeply than any other rich country and also has higher ambitions for further cuts uh, more than a- any other country, more than other countries in Europe and certainly more than the U.S. I think the, the, the real numbers are that carbon emissions in the U.K. are down 44% since 1990, and the ambition is to get to a 78% cut by 2035. And the U.S. has only said they're going to cut by half, but by 2030. So if you want to do apples to apples, it turns out that the, the 2030 cuts would be that the U.K. would be at 68%, the U.S. at 43%. So the U.K. is actually higher ambitions and higher performance on climate action than the U.S. So hats off, Imogen. And you know what? Yes, and it was all me. So thank you. I did it all myself. (laughs) I haven't lived in the country in over 20 years. But yes, I will take your praise. But no, I mean, what, what is striking about that is, you know, a large piece of that has to do with the fact that the UK no longer has a coal industry, right? And, and, the, the sort of breaking of the back of the coal industry really happened under Margaret Thatcher, right? And, and it was this, coal pits had been closing sort of post-World War II, but Thatcher, it was sort of a defining part of Thatcher's policy, and there were these massive fights between organized labor and the Thatcher government over the closing of the coal pits, and there are obviously towns that were completely decimated as a result of this, um, and whole communities that were destroyed, and it was labor that was fighting this, right? So, so these were some of the defining fights, political fights of the 80s. But what that now means is sort of fast forward to today and you have organized labor, you know, entirely in the pro doing something about climate change camp, which is not what you have in the US because in the US you still have so many labor jobs that are tied to industry related to climate change, including, you know, coal and steel. And the same thing, the UK has a steel industry, but not really anymore. Um, and again, like as an island, it makes sense that the UK wants to find renewable sources of power, right? Yeah. And the other thing driving this, of course, is that the COP, the Conference of the Parties, the big UN climate summit uh, that you referenced in the headlines, Brian, is coming up later this month in Glasgow in the UK. And so all, sort of all eyes are on the UK when it comes to to climate, I will say those pledges that the U.S. made and the and the and the, and the Brits made uh, have not really been matched uh, by all the other countries that are coming to to Glasgow. And you know, there's talk of what people call an ambition gap. Um, people are really looking for countries to step up, and maybe that's maybe that's what Boris Johnson's uh, you know uh, legacy, historical legacy, would be if he can pull it off. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, God, you know, if that is Boris Johnson's political legacy, that would, you know, be amazing. Um, there is the backdrop of Brexit here as well, right? It's, it's very clear that the UK wants to be seen to be a major player on the world stage. And, and it wants to be playing a, a pivotal role, ideally in the same way that France did with the Paris summit in being a, a world leader and a climate leader and showing that, that outside of um, the EU, Britain has this sort of leadership role to play. I mean, it's, it's no small irony that you know, COP is being held in Glasgow and, and Scotland would, frankly, for the most part, far rather be part of the EU than it would be the UK. But this idea that, like, you know, countries are going to pull together with the UK, with the US, with Europe, you know, this is the, this is sort of, you know, we were discussing climate finance at the COP conference in Marrakesh four, five, four years ago before when, when Trump got elected. And that just deflated all of the energy out of these conversations. And, and now, you know, these conversations are back. And the question is, you know, how are we going to finance? We've lost another four years. How are we going to finance the carbon transition? And, and how are we going to do it now? Uh, so, so speaking of how we're going to finance this, has, has the UK government's willingness to address climate change seeped into how UK-based institutional investors are thinking about their own strategies? So the answer to this is very much yes and no, right? Um, the, the political battle, again, has been won in the UK. You know, uh, I talk in the article about the fact that the parliamentary pension plan is somewhat divested from fossil fuels. Um, you would never see that, you know, the idea of getting the U.S. pension, the, the U.S. federal pension plan to even discuss climate change is like a challenge, right? So conceptually, most of these investors are on board with the notion that climate change is real, it's important, it affects them, and they need to do something about it. You know, the, the TCFD tracking sort of climate risks to portfolios, that came out of the U.K., you know, and the US, but it was really driven by Mark Carney and when he was head of the Bank of England. And this notion of climate change as a risk to investors is sort of broadly accepted and broadly being adopted and taken up. The, the on-the-ground reality, however, is if you actually look at what the pension plans are doing, it really doesn't amount to a huge amount, right? So it, it's... It's small changes. Like, again, the parliamentary pension plan went to a low carbon index. Arguably, that is a big deal. I think if all institutional investors did that, you know, it would be significant. But, like, they're not, you know, they're asking their managers to do shareholder engagement. It's a lot of relying on sort of a handful of brand name investment managers to engage with corporate America and drive change. And we've been doing corporate engagement, you know, for 40 years, and it's not exactly a smart, 
a fast transition. I will say, Imogen, that I got more of an education on the sort of intricacies of UK pension plans than I had uh, really bargained on in that column. But I did learn something interesting about Glasgow, which is the the host city of the the COP. And as you said, they had a a, a municipal pension plan, I guess, that um, had some uh, you know public officials as their trustees, and they were moving towards kind of ambitious uh, climate goals. And then, as you said in the column, they kind of they kind of whiffed at the last minute. I mean, what what is the drive train here between the sort of political will and the actual investment allocation? Yeah, so I mean, there are, there are two there, there are two blocks to implementation. One is investment staff, and one is investment consultants, right? And this. This sort of speaks to the entire way that the asset management industry is set up. It's it's a very backward-looking industry and it's very conservative, right? So, you know, consultants don't like to recommend funds that don't have a long track record. They don't like recommending, like, radical change. Um, and, you know, staff at these organizations are basically bureaucrats. They're not going to they're not gonna push the envelope. Like, that's not what they're here to do. And so, you know, you have this tension between, in this case, the sort of Glaswegian councillors and again, union representatives who are like, we want to, we're all in, we want to do a big action. And then the staff being like, no, let's measure this and think about it for many months and come up with a lighting system for what we should divest from and only divest from things that seem to be moving in completely the wrong direction, which is basically no one because everyone's now sort of doing something. And so they're, they're, and the, the problem is that they're slow walking a process that requires urgency, right? And the same thing for the investment consultants. So in Strathclyde's case, which is the Glaswegian pension plan, you know, they, they've had the same investment consultant for 30 years and they just did a um, asset allocation study. And amongst his recommendations, they were like, oh, we should invest in the Bailey Gifford Alpha fund, and and this is the fund that has its performance has really been really good because it did a big investment in Tesla for a long time. So they're like invest in the Bailey Gifford Alpha fund, but then there's another fund that you could invest in, which is the Bailey Gifford Alpha Paris Alpha Paris Aligned fund, which basically aligns with companies that are part of the clean energy transition. And they were like, but we don't think you should do that because it's untested. It's like ninety five percent of the same holdings. It's the same team. And all it's really doing is sort of tweaking the formula a bit. So you're emphasizing companies that align with the Paris Agreement, which, again, if you believe climate change is real, you would think that in many respects that would lower your risk. But from a sort of consultant perspective and an investment management perspective, you know, it's too risky to take that leap to, to such a you know edgy fund. And so this is it's sort of this glacial pace of change at a time when urgency is needed. And I think one of the things that concerns me with this whole process, and it's not just the UK, you can look at Europe and to some extent the US, like we're relying on these institutions to be the agents of change. And that's not what they're set up to do. And it's not what their job is. And it's also in their minds, not what their fiduciary duty is. Well, it's interesting, Imogen. You've had many of these conversations, and I have as well, where you have uh, some some report or some pledges made, or somebody joins some one of these coalitions or alliances, and they make a big statement about how urgent and and, and important 
climate changes and you dig into what their actual changes in their investment strategies or their investment allocations have been. And as you say, it's either glacial or partial, or they'll say, you know, the entire the entire portfolio is at risk from a major climate repricing event, which is just on the horizon. And so we're going to move five percent of our assets to a low carbon fund, and and it just seems that the that the uh, response does not match the, the, the even their own analysis, much less any activist or, or or alarm ringer analysis. But even their own analysis would would seem to suggest they should be moving exactly. Out, you know? And it's it's it, the problem is is we're dealing with an unprecedented event, right? So they're all their models are all set up to look backwards. They can't look forward. And so it makes it hard for them to be like, yes, which the logical thing to do would be, let's move 100% of our portfolio into a low climate risk fund. But they're not set up or capable of doing that. And so, so you end up with this mismatch between rhetoric and action. And I do think that, you know, I think, look, we've, we've in some ways we've come a long way in the last five years. We have a much longer to go and we're not moving fast enough. And clearly, you know, there is there is value to the rhetoric, right? There is there is value to all of these European pension plans and UK saying we care about climate change, it's important, right? It's very hard now for BlackRock to say not vote against climate resolutions if it wants to have any business in Europe. Right. So I think that there is, and I think we are seeing change in behavior and change in action. So I find all the pledging and all of that stuff annoying, but I, I think there is, that there is clearly, and this is the activist approach, right? There, 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 is, there is something that comes with that and changing society and saying, you know, you have, I mean, you look at meeting minutes for UK pension plans right now, like it's all ESG. Which, all which, which is what I do in my spare time, just it, to be that's, clear. That's, I spend a long time looking at pension meeting minutes, don't diss it. Um, like it's, it's all ESG all the time. And you would not have seen that five years ago. You know, is, again, is that resulting in changes in investment behaviors? Nah, not really, but it changes sort of the political norms. It changes the discourse. Isn't this kind of, uh, Caution or, or 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 baby steps problem, as you're saying, is it, that that's kind of the argument for some kind of government uh, mandate here, right? You know, f- sort of force the investment committees to do what they actually need to do, but somehow don't can't find the courage to do on their own, and so give some kind of clear, unmistakable signal of where government policy is going, whether that's on, you know, various kinds of, of, of carbon reduction mandates or prices of carbon or, or other sorts of signals, so that the people who crunch the analysis can't come to no other conclusion, but that they must move much faster to move the capital. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I, I think I think one, one of the things you will see likely coming out of COP is encouraging investors in the UK and elsewhere to invest in renewable and low carbon infrastructure. Um, I don't know if that will be through mandates or it will be through sort of other incentive schemes, but I think that you will see that. Um, you know, in the in the US, you know, there's this, all this discussion around the Department of Labor and fiduciary duty and ESG, right? I think, you know, and then again, the the task force on financial disclosure is kind of a way of bringing 
climate risk into fiduciary duty. The problem, obviously, in the US is it's just become a political hot potato and it's just going to bounce back and forth depending who's in power. Because you have more political alignment in the UK and in the EU around agreeing climate change is real, I think you will see more, more regulatory changes in that regard. And you're already seeing it in the EU with regards to sort of what they're doing on ESG and forcing asset managers to say, do we, you know, do we use ESG analytics? If not, why not? And if so, how? Right. So, so it sounds like, Imogen, that there is a popular support for climate policies in the UK in general, and that sets the stage well for the UK hosting COP26. But uh, overall, the, the, the record is perhaps mixed when you look at uh, what the UK is doing from an, its investment uh, institutional investors and what it's doing from its uh, government regulations. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to leave with the impression that like everything in the UK is awesome, right? And everyone's like, you know, fully bought in to the carbon transition agenda. Like one of the major reasons that particularly people on the conservative side wanted to get out of Brexit and leave was because they didn't like regulation from Brussels, right? They didn't like this overlay of additional regulation and some of that is related to climate, right? So they might be recognize the need for the transition, recognize the need to finance the transition, does that mean that they like regulating things like cows? Probably not, right? And it doesn't mean that there aren't sort of dodgy finance things that happen around solar projects and stuff like that. It's not, you know, some la-la land where everything is awesome or I would still be living there. Um, but I do think that it is, you know, trying to set itself up to be, you know, progressive and innovative. And so that's why... For the UK, you know, having COP26 in Glasgow is such a big deal and it's really on them. And again, well, we'll see if they're able to deliver to, to ensure that there are real outcomes that come out of COP26. David, final thoughts? Well, just, you know, the, it's uh, it's on Boris, but it's actually on the U.S. Congress as well. If if, if we get a, a ambitious climate policy and some real spending, you know, power behind it, you know, before uh, President Biden goes to... Glasgow, you know, he'll come with with something to to say, and if and if we don't, you know, he he may he may have to be uh, just um, hemming and hawing about what the U.S. is really going to do. So the push is really on uh, for for this uh, for this summit, and um, you know, fingers crossed. Well, that's I think that's a good place to, to wrap up. Thank you so much, Imogen and David. Thank you both. It's great to be with you again, both of you. And that's going to do it for your Impact Briefing this week. More all day, every day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily email brief. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks as always to our terrific producer, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, Head of Sustainability for the capital markets firm TPICAP. Until next time, take good care.